Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Welcome to a particularly unique episode of The Path and the Practice because it is an episode that features me. The tables are turned, and in this discussion, I am the guest on the show. But to help with the interview, I brought in Larry Perlman who is a labor and employment partner out of Foley's Miami office to act as the host. So I am in the hot seat. We discuss my path to law and then actually my departure from law to become a diversity and inclusion professional. Larry often jokes that he has to remember he is not in deposition, but he does a fantastic job at walking me through my life, which essentially started with me growing up in the suburbs of Milwaukee, attending American University in DC for college, and then the University of Michigan, Michigan Law School. I then became a general commercial attorney and a labor and employment lawyer for about seven and a half years before leaving practice to be a legal recruiter for a couple of years and then becoming a dedicated diversity and inclusion professional. This episode was really fun, but also very hard as I am not used to being the one getting interviewed. But after 47 episodes, I thought it was time to turn the tables and let you all hear a little bit more about your host. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Larry Perlman, welcome to the podcast, except this episode's a little bit different. I'm not welcoming you as guest. I'm welcoming you as almost the host, or let's call it, it's th- we're each a host, but I'm the guest, but the tables have turned and you're here to help me do my own episode of The Path and the Practice, which feels really weird. Well, it's going to be even weirder because I don't interview people anymore unless I'm taking their deposition. You depose people. You're going to depose me today. But before we talk about me very quickly, just so the listener knows, Larry is a labor and employment partner out of Foley's Miami office. He's already been on the show. Super interesting background that includes being a medical doctor before law school. So definitely listen to that. But Larry and I went to law school together, and I've had a number of people say, Alexis, you should have your own episode of the show. And I think we're on episode 48 now, and I reluctantly was like, okay, but I need to bring someone on to help me do it. And here we are. For the record, I'm one of those people who said that, (laughs) right? Well, I'm glad you're willing to back it up by being here, but I guess... I guess we should just jump in because I want to start the show myself. I'm like ready to question myself, but no, I'll I toss it to you, Larry. Let's let's go. Where do we start? Well, what would you ask yourself if you were asking the first question? It's always, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I start every episode like that. So no reason you should be different <laughs> from anyone else. Tell us where you're from and where you grew up. It's true. So longtime listeners know I grew up in Wisconsin. If you're new to the show, maybe this is news to you, but I grew up in Glendale, Wisconsin which is in the northern suburbs of Milwaukee. And that really was like fourth grade on. Before that, bounced around in the northern suburbs of Chicago and actually went to three different elementary schools. I was in different schools for first, third, and fourth grade. So my my parents moved a lot, and then we settled in Glendale, Wisconsin. And that was that. So it was fated for you to be a Foley and Lardner person, right? You know, it sort of was. What's hysterical is I realized before the pandemic and before the world shut down, I was at an event with our CEO, Jay Rothman, and we discovered that he lives in Whitefish Bay and was essentially a block or two behind my the house I grew up in. And I was telling Jay, I was like, Jay, it's funny. I have so many overlapping things with Foley. And he was like, those are called signs, Alexis. <laughs> those are called signs. So if this was one of those sci-fi TV shows or like Lost or something, there'd be a flashback scene of little Alexis with Jay Rothman walking right by you. And oh, yeah, he's walking past. He's like walking his dog past the house. <laughs> but I think it was maybe the last five or 10 years or so that I was there that technically I was neighbors with Jay. But yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee going to like very suburban schools 
doing things that kids in the suburbs do, hanging out at the mall. Like that was kind of my childhood. And did you go to high school in the Milwaukee suburbs too? I did. I went to Nicolay High School, which back to all the ties with the firm, a few episodes back, podcast with Mike Lappin, who's a recent of Council to Foley. We went to the same high school. (laughs) So very like Milwaukee area, very suburban. But I think something that's interesting, and I'll just add in, is I was one of very few Black kids in the schools that I went to. They were predominantly white schools and Wisconsin, I don't, or in the Milwaukee area, I don't know if they still have this. They had this program called the 220 program. And so to essentially integrate the suburban schools, which are predominantly white, they would bus in kids from the city of Milwaukee. And I was one of few black students that was not bused in from Milwaukee, which created just some interesting dynamics for me because there was sort of the sense of like, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think I felt like I didn't fit in, but there was this layer of sort of not fitting in. So two things. One is it took everything in me not to ask you how to spell the name of your high school because I keep on forgetting I'm not taking your deposition. <laughs> so we don't have to spell the name of your high school, right? It's French. It's a French pronunciation. So N-I-C-O-L-E-T, Nicolet, not Nicolette. Nicolet. <laughs> well, th- thank you for um, humoring me and letting me go forward with my um, deposition OCD. And you said you felt like you didn't fit in. With which group? With the kids who were bused in? With the kids who lived in the area? With both? With neither? Well, it's funny because we're just jumping right in. We're five minutes into the show and we're getting to heavy stuff. But I think for, and I, it's funny, I can't help but globalize this, but I should say it's just for me, but there can be this dynamic of being sort of too white for the black kids, too black for the white kids, where you, and don't get me wrong, I had plenty of friends, like life was fine growing up, but there were these sort of expectations depending on what what group you were in, which I highlight because I think this experience growing up is actually a bit of my superpower as a diversity and inclusion professional and sort of explains why and how I eventually ended up on the path that I'm on, minus the whole going to law school and being a lawyer for a bit thing. Okay, well, that's not fair, because I was going to ask you how, if at all, did that experience impact your current position as a diversity professional, but you can't help yourself with the question. I can't. I can't. I told you, I'm still the host. I can't help it. But no, I definitely think there's something there. And I think it's something that I've reflected on and generally changed. But when you are a minority within a much larger group, there's this need to get along. And I think I really felt like I had to hone my personality and was probably a bit of a people pleaser for much of my life as a result, because I just, I wanted to be liked by everyone. I don't think I have as much of that motivating me now, but it's certainly something that is why when I talk about diversity and inclusion, I tend to be able to resonate or have the topic feel, make, make everybody feel comfortable because I've spent a lot of my life, I guess, working on that, on that skill. But yeah, we're just diving in deep within the first five minutes. Do you think back, you know, in your high school days and before you were consciously working on that skill? I don't think, I think it was more of a subconscious thing, but it's funny. Most of us have something from high school where you're like, yeah, I definitely had this feeling and this caused me to have this sort of coping mechanism. And I think for me, it was, I really just felt like I needed to be very engaging for everyone because I was already different in some way. Well, I'm sure we're going to get back to this discussion in a bit, but you mentioned your detour into practicing law, right? Tell us about that. How did you end up with this sort of large detour detour practicing law? Yeah, that decade-long detour. So my mother is a lawyer, and I suppose I could just stop there. She never practiced, but she went to law school. And I think in many ways, she raised me to be a litigator. And I had, I know you can appreciate this just based on, we were, before the show, we were talking about how just like accomplished artists your children are, but I'm raised by an artist and a lawyer. And so (laughs) part of me is that analytical sort of legal mind. The other part of me is like, I want to take pictures and like do photography and pursue theatrical arts. (laughs) And so that was sort of the split I had growing up, a ton of time spent in the theater on the technical side. And the other part of me was like, I'm going to law school. And so that's what I did. I see there's an alternative or an alternate universe where I am 
a photographer or I stage managed plays. Like there's a universe where that's what I did. But in this universe, I decided the more assured path, the one that could make, make sure that I was able to eat and pay rent was one where I went to law school. So that's what I did. I went to American University in DC for undergrad. And even my freshman year, I was like, I'm going to law school and I'm going to take the LSAT. Like I could tell you when I was taking the LSAT, probably as a freshman. And I could tell you which schools I was trying to go to. So I was a pre-law major, philosophy and law and society, uh, did that. And then with, oh, I don't know, maybe two weeks between undergrad and law school, I went to law school at the University of Michigan, which is where I met you. Well, I was going to ask, who was your favorite fellow law student? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it was Dr. Larry Perlman. But yeah, I, it's so funny because on this show, I try to have people of all backgrounds because the point is everyone's path is unique. But I have a really prototypical background in terms of my path to law school. I just went straight through, took zero time off. I was a pre-law major. I wasn't even like a cool major. And then I went to law school and at the University of Michigan, as you know, but the listeners may not know, they used to start a class, a section early. So they would essentially start a section in what, June um, instead of waiting till September. And we were called the summer starters and we were in the same section. So when I got offered the opportunity to start school early, I was like, yes, let's go. But I mean, we did save money, right? Because we started the semester early. So with the tuition rises, um, we avoided the last one. Yes. Well, you saved money. But it's funny when I look back, because I ask everybody this on the show, why did you want to go to law school? And for me, it was like, I just always knew I wanted to. It was something I just, I, I don't, and I feel like it's not a great reason. Okay. But you say it was what you always wanted to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yet- when you were describing your path a few minutes ago, and boy, I'm really not taking your deposition, I promise. <laughs> well, isn't it true that you said, <laughs> no, when you were describing your path, though, you made it a point to say, well, I have my mom who's, you know, the, the consummate lawyer and, you know, um, in that world. And my dad is an artist and I, Alexis, have both sides. And you made it a point to really emphasize your interest in photography and theater. And you talked about alternate universe, Alexis who mm-hmm. uh, is a stage manager for productions. So during your years of college, right, when you're you know, pre-law and all driven in that direction, uh, did your artistic sort of sensibilities come out or were you suppressing them? Not a lot. So mostly, yes. I, I do recall taking maybe a semester, maybe I don't even think it was a class, but I managed to get into the black and white photo lab and do some photography stuff. But I remember thinking like, this just isn't working with what I have going on. And this sounds terrible, but I didn't care enough to declare either of those things as like a secondary major or as a minor. And it felt like unless it was something that you had as a major or minor, it just wasn't very easy to do. So those things did sort of drop to the wayside. At some point, I, this is right around the time, by the way, when digital cameras are coming out. So just to, just to date me, when I was in high school, I was a photography assistant. I would literally go to the black and white photo lab in my high school and I would mix the chemicals for the day for the class. And I remember when my teacher got a digital camera and we were all like, no, like you're forsaking us. Like This is not the purest form. And so at some point in college, I got a digital camera and it was, it wasn't a full on like DSLR, but it was a nicer one versus those little point and shoots that everyone used to carry around, which by the way, is so funny to talk about because right now, if you see someone with a separate point and shoot digital camera, that is not some like fancy, like digital SLR, you look at them and you're like, why do you have that? Like, don't you have a phone? Like, why do you even own that? But at that time, the photography was really was transitioning. I saw no way to get involved in the theater. And once again, did I try that hard? Probably not. I was like 18. I don't know. But I ultimately was like, I'm all in philosophy, law and society. I'm all in the things that one should do if they're going to law school. Did you enjoy doing those things? I did. There's a certain level. This sounds terrible. But when you're doing particularly philosophy and just getting to opine and think about and sort of, I mean, and argue in certain ways. It's really fun and it's it's somewhat subjective. So some of those grades are just dictated by how much the teacher likes you. And and I and I liked that. Going back to the people pleasing thing like that, that worked for me. Whereas the one semester of statistics I had to take, 
that was a challenge. That was very right or wrong. And I, I didn't I didn't love things that could be objectively right or wrong. So you're not a multiple choice test fan. <laughs> I can do it. It's fine. It's fine. It's not my favorite. That being said, as oddly, I'm not somebody who loves writing. Like I can certainly do it. And you know, I had to do it for many years. And I I think I'm probably better at average, better than average at it. But I do think there's a passion for writing that I maybe was lacking, particularly as a litigator. I think a lot of people I know who are really good litigators, they get an enjoyment out of writing that I actually never got. Well, I I do have to um, give the anecdote. I remember, and for listeners who didn't listen to my version of the podcast when I was on the interview hot seat, Alexis and I were moot court partners. And I still recall, I think we were sitting in the Michigan Union, in the coffee shop there, and we both signed up to do moot court. We ended up you know, deciding to become each other's partners, which was great. And we had this realization that neither of us, um, it was unbeknownst to either of us, that we had to draft briefs. And I remember both of us, but you know, WT, wait a second, we have to write stuff for this. And so, uh, See, here's the problem. Maybe I think I would have done it anyway, but there is a difference, everyone, between mock trial and moot court. <laughs> and I think in a perfect world, you and I would have done a very a robust mock trial experience because moot court is appellate briefs like i don't know but I, it's we did well we did well regardless though yeah, we, we made it to semifinals despite us griping about having to write those briefs so we um, did i will attest to all the listeners that alexis is very skilled at writing despite maybe not loving it as much yeah maybe so. not but we are better on our feet as all the judges told us they were like you guys are way too dynamic for this like you need to both chill out a bit and have less that <laughs> be less interesting <laughs> this is an appellate court we're trying to pretend to be right now wait yeah. okay but i'm gonna get me back okay i go to law school <laughs> straight through i meet larry perlman and it's funny because i think a lot of legal practice and having children has pushed law school out of my brain but Often when I have people on the show, I ask them, what was that transition like for you? Overall, I really enjoyed law school. I do think knowing you and a few of the other people that we were friends with, particularly people who had had other lives and really treated law school like a job was really, really helpful for me. I also lived off campus, so I didn't kind of get caught up in... Uh, there's some drama that can come with law school. No. And because I would leave campus every day, I didn't get caught up in that. And I thought it was fun overall. It certainly was a challenge. You had to buckle down and study, but overall I enjoyed it. But I think I enjoyed working more than being in law school. And some people really enjoyed law school and would have done that for the rest of their lives. So you're in law school, right? Or you were in law school to be correct. And you've told us that when you were an undergrad, you're kind of driven, driven, driven. I'm going to go to law school. And you know, I always saw myself as a litigator. I know spoiler alert, that you became a litigator. Mm -hmm. But did anything in law school kind of challenge your path to litigation? No, not even a little bit. (laughs) All of the, well, one, most of law school, especially then, and I think over the last decade plus, law school has become a bit more practical with transactional-based things than, say, what we had in school. Most of the things that classes that I took were sort of litigation-based and that you're reading cases. Things I really enjoyed usually had to do with constitutional law. So that was where just my, I don't know, passion for constitutional-based things would, would run wild. And then my summer associate experiences just confirmed that I wanted to do litigation. So I was a summer associate, my 1L summer at Bully and Lardner. 2L summer, I was actually at another firm. But with both of those experiences... I would tell myself, Alexis, just try something transactional. And I would read the description and I was like, oh, but not that. And then I, both summers, I never t- meaningfully tried a transactional assignment, which is absolutely not what you should do for law students who are listening. That is not what you should do. You should try them, but but I did not. So you're telling us that you did not find yourself attracted to transactional law, but what was it about litigation that did draw your interest? I mean, at base, I think it's because I understood it, 
which is probably not a good reason, (laughs) but just being like, I understood what was going on. I understood that there were courts and I understood that there was a dispute and I understood that each party had to explain why they should win. Whereas what little exposure I did get to transactional matters, it felt very abstract to me and I just couldn't orient myself, which made cause me to not be interested. And I hope that when I say that people listening can understand why that's maybe not a great reason. Because I think it's important, particularly when you're a junior in your career, to get exposure to a lot of different things. But but that's just not what happened for me. And do you think, and you're sort of alluding to it without saying it, so don't let me put words in your mouth, even though I'm about to put words in your mouth, right? Do you think exposure to litigation and to transactional law in law school, it doesn't necessarily reflect what the practice is going to be like? I think that is exactly right. So you may have put words in my mouth, but I I adopt those words. I agree with those words. And once again, realizing that I graduated from law school and we graduated from law school in 2007 and things may have changed. I think there's a lot to be said from doing your research, talking to, to real live actual lawyers to see what they're doing, because no, as a litigator, you're not just reading cases and, you know, highlighting them and, you know, writing essays about, you know, what happened with an intentional tort. That's not, that's, there, and there's a lot more, I think, really practical stuff in terms of client, client service happening. For those who want to be law firm attorneys or partners at law firms, there's a lot to be said from just understanding literally everything that your firm does and what your partners do. And if you're a bit myopic like myself, you're, you're somewhat inhibited from doing that because you can sort of be stunted and be like, "Eh, I don't really know what corporate does. Well, that's half your firm. (laughs) So it can be really beneficial to have that full picture. But I do think actual legal practice is different from law school. And I also think that's why this podcast is a nice resource for law students, because we dig in to what legal practice is actually like. I have to mention something you said confused me, which is you made it sound like 2007 is a long time ago. And in my mind, that's just like five years ago, right? I'm not missing something, am I? Well, here's the thing. I don't consider it to be that long ago, but I I guess, you know, Larry, I guess we're closing in on 14 years ago, which is sort of crazy. I often will tell summer associates at the firm that I'm older than I look because particularly now in this... uh video conference age where we're all on, you know, Teams or Zoom or Skype. And I'm like, "Eh, you know, maybe I could pass for a law student, but I remind them, no, I've been around this profession for a while. So, but I, but, so I don't know, it's subjective, but Larry, it was, it was a while ago. Yeah. See, now you're making me not happy here, but. (laughs) (laughs) Embrace it. It's fine. So do you feel and this is an odd question, well, oddly worded, I was going to say strike that. Can't see, I can't stop deposing people. It's um, something that my wife and kids remind me of all the time. (laughs) Do you think that you at some point did figure out what business lawyers do? Because when? I generally have. It was actually, we're not there yet. It was actually when I was a legal recruiter because maybe we'll get to this, the pivot for me between legal practice and my current job as a director of diversity inclusion was I was an outside recruiter. I helped lawyers find jobs with law firms and corporations. And in order to competently do that, you essentially need to know what all the lawyers do. Like you have to learn about every single type of law. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you don't have a certain type of opening you're working on, maybe you can avoid it. But generally speaking, I had to pick all of it up. So I did, but I'm I'm super candid on this show. Obviously, my comfort level is with the litigators, and I I never want to try and tell a transactional lawyer what they do because I never lived that life. But no, I do have a concept of of what they do. So we're going to go out of time order because I do want to talk about your life as a litigator. But I'm just curious, how did you go about learning what all sorts of lawyers do? I would often get my candidates to to teach me or work with my colleagues. Now. I'm going to pause here because it's not a great look as a recruiter to seem like you don't know what's going on. So just to be very clear about that, but there were certain candidates. So for example, like a data privacy associate, you know, I'd go to lunch, we'd talk about what they were looking for. And I remember having a data privacy associate give me this like 30 minute crash course in data privacy. You know, he still felt good about working with me, but to the extent it was appropriate and worked, I would get my clients to tell me about their life and their focus and their interests. And then also literally from job, job descriptions and also from colleagues in the industry, you you pick up what 
pretty much everybody does. So if someone wants to talk to me about investment management, I can kind of do that. No, I don't know it super well, but I have an idea of that. I have an idea of, of what most lawyers do because of that experience. I'm just kind of laughing because I'm thinking of you doing the old trick of, well, of course, I know what a data privacy associate <laughs> does. But just so I know, how would you explain it to someone else? What exactly is a security incident versus a data breach? And when do you call one the one and when do you call one the other? But no. It, and, the, and that's the thing. And I really actually appreciate that time as a recruiter because, one, it's fun. But it made me interested in the legal industry in a way that I don't know that I would have been otherwise. So in addition to doing what I do day to day now, I'm a bit of a nerd for the industry because when you're a recruiter, you need to keep tabs on that. Keep tabs on the, the in industry and developments and which practice groups are hot and all that in a way that I don't know that I would have paid attention to had I not had that experience. So let's back up and talk about your experience pre-recruiting post-Michigan Law School. Yep. Uh, what did you do and for how many years and where? Yeah. So I was a commercial litigator at Kirkland and Ellis for the first six years of my career. And then for the remaining, let's call it year and a half, I was a labor and employment lawyer at Cypress Shaw. But actually in law school, I thought I wanted to be a labor and employment lawyer. <laughs> that was supposed to be the plan. But my thought was, let's go somewhere where they will teach me to litigate. I actually had an, and I had an awesome 1L summer at Foley, but often with 1Ls, what happens is that place you go for your 2L summer kind of is the most recent in your brain. But it's funny because of course, you know, Foley got me back anyway, but that's what I was. I was general commercial, large scale litigation. And then I got my wish and became a dedicated labor and employment lawyer after having, you know, done some labor and employment matters over the years at Kirkland. But I found that I wasn't it was fine, but I still wasn't as happy. I thought like the skies would kind of open in part and balloons would fall out once I became an employment lawyer, particularly after following your career, Larry. I was convinced that was just what I needed to do. But ultimately, I found that I wasn't as satisfied in my career as I, as I thought I would be once I got my practice area of choice. So let's unpack a little bit, right? You went from commercial litigator to labor and employment lawyer. So as a commercial litigator, what did you like? What did you not like? Um, what drove you to labor and employment? All right. So what did I not like? I was, because a lot of the matters were so big, it was hard for me to know what's going on. And by the way, this is probably the theme or a unifying thread is Alexis trying to understand what's going on. <laughs> but often when you're dealing with really large scale litigation, you have one small component of that. And overall, I think I was attracted to labor employment because I was like, that's where the people are. Like at the end of the day, usually it's a dispute involving people and I could figure that out, which I've, and I've been on a number of podcasts and it's, I've said this before, but just not on the Foley podcast. I think me trying to get closer to people and human interactions is literally what I did by becoming a diversity and inclusion professional. <laughs> like I ultimately got my wish. I ended up sort of dropping the, the law part. But when I became a labor and employment lawyer, okay, I've arrived. Like, I get it. I understand what's going on. Some sorts of human interactions have, even, you know, have allegedly violated some sort of law. I can figure this out. And I was just, I was just trying to get closer to the people. Hey, you have to excuse me. I'm writing that down for when people ask me why I'm an employment lawyer. So I like the answer. It's also, you know, in all seriousness, if you do, and I think you have asked me why I do labor and employment work for myself and those of us who practice in this area, um, it is about the people, right? And um, that is, I, I would argue that especially in terms of big law and what we do, I can't think of any other area of specialization that gets you deep in the weeds with people and dealing with human you know, interactions and consequences. So, um, but we still couldn't convince you, we meaning the employment bar as a whole, we still couldn't convince you to stay. So, mm -hmm. so, and then going into recruiting got me to people because in many ways being a recruiter, at least I think if you're a good recruiter, sorry, now I feel like I'm disparaging bad ones, but yes, I will disparage bad recruiters. You are involved in what is one of the most difficult or vulnerable situations that people go through, which is trying to find a new job. I think up there with buying a house, death, divorce, like some of the big things that happen in life, finding a job is really, really stressful. And so, yes, there's just the nuts and bolts of telling them, you know, what positions are available and submitting resumes. But I really enjoyed the sort of hand-holding and advising part because it's a very human 
experience that you're helping someone with. So, and, and also it was a job that I was doing anyway. Because I was also that person who was like, oh, yeah, actually, my friend is hiring here. Or like, I'd ask my firm, like, oh, you're hiring for that? I think I know the person. So it was something that I was doing anyway. So I thought, okay, one, it was scary. Just making that switch was absolutely scary. And we don't even have time probably to get into all the nuts and bolts of that. But it felt like something that was really aligned with who I was and what my interests were. And I figured I could go back to practice if I wanted to. So let's let's go try this new thing. Well, I think we do have some time to discuss that. And I think it's important, right? And in your own words, you said it's really scary to find a new job. Yet you, Alexis, um, are someone who your entire life said, you know, since you're a little kid said, I'm going to be an attorney, I'm going to be a litigator. It's what you always thought you would do. It's, uh, you know, you went to law school, you said, yes, I'm going to be a litigator. You spent all these years, you became a litigator, you litigated for you know, six, seven, eight years or whatever it is. And at some point that all ended, right? And mm-hmm. I, we can talk and we will about what lessons you learned and what you take, you know, what you bring from your past experience. But at some point after just years of going down this path, you had to have, you know, come to some point where you were introspective and said, I am changing my path. I will not be actively practicing law. I will not be litigating. So mm-hmm. come on, you got to tell us more about that and what that decision was like. Well, it's one of those things where all jokes sort of the universe conspires for certain opportunities co- to come up. So this opportunity came up and I also thought, well, you know, the solution for me is clearly just to become an in-house lawyer. I just need to go in-house. <laughs> so as I was finding out about this role from the recruiter who was also hiring, I was like, wait, wait, oh, I'll find on, out about hold both. On. I'm interrupting you. <laughs> Sorry. The solution to what? I didn't. The solution to all problems that any lawyers have is you just need to become an in-house lawyer. I don't know if you knew that, but that's that was supposed (laughs) to be the solution. But ultimately, what happened was I got I learned about this role. I met with a career counselor who who basically started really talking to me about you know professional alignment and what my interests are. And by the way, I have to tie this to the Foley podcast because this is not intended to be a session that coaches people out of being lawyers. But I think what you can hear from from what I'm about to say, and also from this podcast in general, is that when people are really passionate about what they do, they're really good at their jobs. And so all the guests that I've had so far and hearing me, it was me getting in alignment with my, my clear passions and interests which makes you better at what you do. And you actually said the exact same thing, Larry, on your episode about how you're like, being a doctor was great, but it, I wasn't intellectually curious about it. I wasn't doing those things outside of, and by the way, I think this is so hard for people to understand because you're like, you're a doctor, you're working plenty. But the things that one would do to continue to be better and improve at, at their craft in the way that you know, Verissa was, who you mentioned, so Larry's wife is also a doctor and she was much more passionate, but trying to find that thing that you're kind of thinking about anyway, right? That on your off time, like, so for me, I had to get in better alignment, but yes, it was scary. And I meant having some hard conversations. I'm very grateful to my spouse who supported me in, in making that transition. And so something about practicing law or litigation wasn't doing it for you, right? It wasn't giving you or wasn't fulfilling that kind of career slash intellectual passion. Life. And I wasn't as nerdy about it as I think ideally I you are. Yeah, well, as I know you are, and many of our lawyers are, that there's things you'll enjoy reading to stay up to date on your practice. And don't get me wrong, there's many aspects of litigation that I actually really enjoyed. In particular, I actually really liked getting opposing counsel's briefs because you got to see if you like guessed what they were going to say. There are certain things where I just like, I was like, oh my God, did I get it? Did I not? So there's definitely aspects, but ultimately the the things that really fueled my curiosity. And that's not to say that I couldn't have found it, just to be honest. So I think, like I said, there's an alternate world in which I'm you know, a photographer, but there's probably also an alter- alternate world where I'm still a lawyer. And I maybe found, you know, more of a groove, but ultimately, you know, I decided to try something else because I told myself, you can always go back to practicing. I did not leave law because I, you know, like hated it and it was the worst thing ever. But ultimately, I felt like there were some things that were more aligned with my interests than who I was. And so an opportunity presented itself for you to enter the recruiting world. And tell us about that, about the recruiting world. And you already did a bit. 
Yeah. Well, recruiting is really fun. I, I will say that, you know, to be a legal recruiter, and this is an outside recruiter, someone who doesn't work for any one organization, it's not rocket science what you're doing, but it is very based on relationships and I think on EQ and your ability to understand people. Or it's based on volume. And I was not a volume person. <laughs> I was good at being a recruiter because I was good about just letting people know what I did, that I was a resource. And I think also it very much operates on karma of, yeah, tell me, let your friend, your friend can call me. I'll give them some advice. Maybe in six months they need some help with a placement or they recommend me to their friend. But I I really, really enjoyed it. But also as a recruiter, particularly because I was a, you know, a black woman lawyer in large law firms, I heavily focused on placing diverse attorneys with law firms and corporations, not exclusively, but based on who my network was, that was a lot of my my candidates. And it actually felt like I was making more of a contribution to DNI as a recruiter than I was when I was practicing, if that may sound weird. Because I was able to talk to firms and bring candidates that, you know, maybe they wouldn't have otherwise considered if not for me raising the candidate with them. Well, I am going to say, and you may hate me or love me for this, but to everyone listening, Alexis has just one of the largest networks of human beings of anyone I know. And you are the first person I go to and I'm like, you know, I need a referral for someone who does this or this, and half the time it's outside of law. Um, you don't leave me empty-handed usually. So I just <laughs> That's a LinkedIn talk. That's a yeah. whole other podcast. But yeah, LinkedIn tracks all that for I me. Just give away the secret. Just call Alexis. Everyone listening, <laughs> you'll get your answer. You'll make your connection, right? And yes. I use the word connection intentionally because a lot of what the theme of what you've been talking about is yes, human, human connection. connection. Yeah, that is very good what it. I'm most interested in. And so as a recruiter, I really got to do that. And I got to focus on that. And recruiting is really fun. It can be stressful because of the compensation model. But ultimately, it's, it is fun. And I think, but for the fact that I presented in 2017, at a NALP conference on recruiting and retaining millennial attorneys of color, I think I might still be a recruiter. But I did this talk at NALP's national conference, and that led to an opportunity being North America manager of diversity and inclusion at Baker McKenzie. And so that is what transitioned me from recruiting to DNI work within law firms. But to be fair, right? So you presented this conference, and maybe you'll tell us a little more about how you ended up being Baker McKenzie in the Baker and McKenzie position. But you didn't say, oh, no, 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 I want to stay as a recruiter right? So there was something more attractive about the diversity role than recruiting, even though in one of your many alternate universes, you may still be recruiting. Still be no. Exactly. It was funny. Initially, it was no, no, no. I like recruiting. I would never, but there's that, just go for coffee, just get more information, just see what's happening. And ultimately, when I learned about what the position was, who I'd be working with, what it entailed, I thought that is a really interesting challenge. And back to my what I said before, except this time it was, but I could always go back to recruiting if this didn't work <laughs> out. <laughs> and so there you go. It, I, you know, I took that position, learned a ton at a very, very large law firm. And so my career as a dedicated diversity and inclusion professional began. What did you do at Baker and McKenzie as a dedicated diversity and inclusion professional? Because, and I'll tell you, you know, I don't know, you know, for the listening public, if we ask people to say, what does a diversity and inclusion professional do? I, I don't know if many of us would be able to give the correct elevator speech. Yep. I'm nodding my head profusely because for a long time, I couldn't have told you either. So I think it's important. And we will especially get to what I do at Foley because that even I think is even more important. But I was over the North America region. So that's the US, Canada, Mexico, and really touching all things related to diversity and inclusion as at the manager level. So that could be related to programming, that could be related to systems that touch on legal talent and development, as well as some of the usual suspects of DNI, which is quite a bit of training quite a bit of working with affinity groups and quite a bit of coordinating outside sponsorship surveys and client requests. So that's kind of like the smorgasbord of things that that I would touch when I was there, which was which frankly was a lot of stuff. How long were you there? Two and a half years. Did anything surprise you during those two and a half years about what a diversity and inclusion professional does? You know, any notions you had that were just debunked or you said, well, this job isn't quite what I thought it entails. 
It's amazing when you see how many different directions DNI professionals are pulled. And to spout a lot of cliches, you know, we are not saving lives here and all of those things, but it is a really disparate skill set usually. And that one day you can be leading a CLE for a client, you know, with more of a, a BD marketing hat on. The next day you're doing a deep dive into statistics and data. The following day you are working on supporting some sort of large scale program or event and, and the list goes on. So it is a, it's a very wide ranging skill set. And I definitely did not appreciate that before I had the role. Do you think you, and I'm not interviewing you for a job, so it's okay. You already have the job, right? Um, it's, uh, do you think you had, you know, the, um, the all the skills needed for that wide ranging skill set? And the follow up question is, what skills did you have to acquire that you may not have had initially? Yeah. There's a fair amount of learning about the industry and who the typical players are, particularly in, in legal that I had heard about because I'd been practicing for so long. But everything from like, what surveys do you particularly do you tend to participate in and all that. But this is where I'm really grateful for my training as a litigator, because a lot of what I do comes down to communication, a lot of it, particularly in terms of making what can be really daunting and complex topics seem approachable and engaging. So I'm really, really grateful for the background in that. And then there is this need to, particularly when it comes to, I think, adult learning and education, <laughs> to keep learning. And this goes back to how if my passions and interests are aligned. So a lot of the stuff that I read in my free time are things that are going to make me better at my job because I have to keep learning. And also you become someone who you have to be humble and be able to admit when you don't know something. If you're a diversity professional, you, you, you kind of stay in that land of what I hope is conscious incompetence. I don't know if you've heard those levels of like, it's like unconscious incompetence, conscious competence. What is it like conscious? I'm going to mess up. There's four levels. So I have to stay in a place where I can admit that I don't know what's going on because I'm a jack of all trades. So there's this level of self-awareness and humility you have to cultivate because there's a lot of issues in an organization that can be brought to me. And for me to tell you that I'm the expert would not be wise for me to do. It wouldn't be wise for my organization. And I have to be able to say, yes, that is important, but we need to bring in an expert to advise us on that. And so that's also really important in the role. So what do you do for our firm, for Foley? I do the same thing, but at more strategic level. So yeah, after being at Baker McKenzie for a number of years, this role opens up at Foley. And let's take this sort of full circle with the like, you know, stars aligning, interesting overlap. So yes, I was a summer associate at Foley. Technically, I worked at Foley before you, Larry. Like, let's just be really clear about that. I started here in 2006. That's true. And you were 2007. And it means nothing because now you're a partner, but I just think that's a claim to fame I should make. But um, <laughs> so I knew Foley as a <laughs> right, right? I was here first. No, I knew Foley as a firm. And, you know, I've, I've shared this number of times. Candidly, I got to watch you matriculate at the firm because, you know, we stayed friends over the years. I didn't know it, but I grew up not far from our, our CEO. But this opportunity with the firm comes up and I saw it. You know, we all get these things emailed to us. And I remember being like, oh, no, it's fine. My life is great. Life is fine. I literally woke up in the middle of the night and was like, but Alexis, you know Foley and Lardner. Like, this is probably one that you should find out more about. And so so I did. And what really drew me to Foley was the fact that the firm had made a really big investment in the legal talent experience by bringing in our chief diversity and inclusion, oh, pardon me, by bringing in our chief legal talent officer, Jen Patton. And that to me indicated that there was going to be buy-in for the change that would need to happen with diversity and inclusion because you really have to have a marriage between DNI and legal talent and development or talent management systems to at least make change in the way that I think DNI should work. And so that's what I get to do at Foley. I work closely with, with Jen. I work closely with Eileen Ridley, our chief diversity and inclusion partner. I work with Jay Rothman. We work with the management committee. And we are looking to really touch all of the systems and do all kinds of education and support our affinity groups, but really having a, a comprehensive, integrated, and holistic approach to DNI. So anyone who follows me on LinkedIn has probably seen me rant about this. I think it's incredibly important that we keep doing the you know affinity groups and the trainings and the outside sponsorships. But to me, those are the floor. And in order for us to make the change we need to make, we have to start talking systems and fully 
already had that in mind before I joined and has embraced my view of the world. And so we've done a lot in the past year, despite the hardships of the pandemic. But yeah, ultimately, I end up touching most aspects of the firm is the bottom line. That's what I do here. What does that mean? We have to start touching systems. So this is one of my favorite topics, and I'll try to be brief, but I think for a very long time, diversity and inclusion has been very focused on changing hearts and minds. It's why don't we have another training? Why don't we have another implicit bias training? If only I could teach each person to dismantle you know, their negative viewpoints of others, we could then have this utopia of an organization. And while I think it's great to have those discussions and have the type of education and training, I think there's a lot that can be done at the systems level. So it's that difference between when the, you know, when the government said, hey, everyone has to wear a seatbelt because it'll stop you from flying out of the car. They didn't have to have seatbelts. They could have been like, we're just going to train everybody to like drive really carefully so nobody crashes and you don't fly out of the car. Well, I think there's more we can do within talent management systems that are akin to seatbelts in the DNI context. So there's things we can do in terms of how we monitor allocation of work, how we structure performance reviews, the questions that we ask when we're recruiting, that I don't need individual buy-in. And that's not to say we don't want it. That's not to say we shouldn't work for it. But I think we should. We need to focus on those systemic things too. And you see more and more organizations doing that. A great article in Harvard Business Review recently about a law firm actually doing something like this within their performance reviews, which neutralize bias. So that is something that just, that topic lights me up, could talk about it all day. But I think that's really the future of diversity and inclusion work is digging into performance management systems and not just relying on implicit bias training. What's a day in the professional life of Alexis Robertson like? What do you do on an average day? Oh, it's all over the place. It depends on the day, which is the really frustrating answer everyone gives you, even if you're just interviewing attorneys at a law firm. And I knew you were going to say that. Exactly. But I could be doing anything from working with an affinity group to meeting with members of my, my department with recruiting or with professional development to you know, leading a program for a client or meeting with a client, reaching out to attorneys at my firm, meeting with various leadership members of leadership at the firm, you know, department chairs, vice chairs to talk about, you know, perhaps work allocation or utilization. But as I mentioned before, if you if so what I tend to do is split diversity and inclusion work into two areas. One is like the core work and one's the expert work. So a lot of the core work is what I'll call the activities of DNI, which at Foley is a lot of what our um, DNI specialist, Asia Joseph, does. So sort of the the day-to-day stuff that if nobody touched, you know, it wouldn't get get done, like you know, supporting affinity groups or outside sponsorships. But the expert work is really me serving as an internal expert. So in a perfect world. In like five, 10 years, I'd kind of pack my bags and be like, Foley, you don't need me anymore. I've embedded every DNI consideration across the firm. So ultimately, a lot of my job is serving as an internal consultant as it relates to diversity and inclusion across the major aspects of Foley, including recruiting, professional development, other aspects of legal talent and development within our um, departments and our practice groups, as well as an external facing component as relates to clients. So a lot of different things is what I touch on. And so you kind of mentioned this hypothetical notion of in a perfect world in five, 10 years, you you know say, I'm done, I'm gonna go retire to the beach and sip in my drink and look back and say, good work, Alexis, um, you're done good. Good work, right? Foley, you, um, you don't need me anymore, yes. What? How do you define good work. And I'm thinking about it less, you know, sort of as a firm, but more as you, right? When you say, you know what, I really do feel like I achieved the goals I set for myself in my professional life. Um, Do you know what those are? And do you know how you've reached those? Not concretely, like not truly, but generally speaking, there is a lot of looking at, at metrics and data and so I think for any DNI professional, you would want to see some major moves in some key demographics, as well as just some sort of analytics laid over that, meaning, you know, are we seeing equal opportunities for for individuals from underrepresented groups? You know, are their hours the same? Are they getting the same opportunities? Are they represented in the partnership and in leadership ranks? And it's something that I think all of us know is going to be a, a long road. I think you know, many firms have made made progress, which is heartening. But ultimately, yeah, my goal is to put myself out of business. I don't I don't want to set up a model here where I'm integral to no, no, I I don't necessarily want to be here. I mean, I do, <laughs> but my goal, I have a, a moral purpose to what I'm doing, which is to ultimately not need, be needed anymore, would be ideal. I do find it funny that 
earlier on, you mentioned when talking about college that you didn't really like statistics as a course in particular. Oh yeah, that came back and got me. Well, and there's two things as we wrap that I want to highlight that I maybe left out and maybe it was intentional. But so this is actually my mom's area of expertise. So I mentioned how she was a lawyer, but she never practiced because she went into the diversity space, the affirmative action plan space, the EEO space, which is funny because I did end up following in her footsteps, which is kind of funny and maybe something I don't like to admit as much as I should. And the other thing I wanted to highlight as we we wrap was I also just wanted to sort of like thank Foley for this platform and this podcast, which I don't normally get to do because I'm always so wrapped up in interviewing our awesome attorneys. But joining Foley has been so interesting because they've been really open to doing things differently. And I think this podcast really shows it. I hope there's more like this that explore the human side of, of lawyers, particularly in large law firms. But so far, we're pretty much it. And I just really think that's a testament to the firm for allowing, you know, this new DNI director to literally have the microphone to tell the firm story. And I just think I think that's awesome. And I I talk to the listeners a lot, but this is my one chance to say, and I hope you stick with me on this ride, because whether or not you work at Foley, there's just so much to be learned about about this career. And please plug your podcast more because the question, and it really dovetails off what you just said, why do you do it? I just think a couple things. One, law firms need to embrace new media. And two, we need to have passive ways to consume information. People press play on this while they're walking their dog, while they're doing their dishes. Also, Foley attorneys have so many interesting stories. And Foley attorneys are proxies for all attorneys and they're proxies for people. People have interesting stories if you just ask them about themselves. And so I love having the opportunity for 45 minutes or so to showcase some of those and hopefully to inspire others to learn that, just like I say in the trailer episode, there's no prototypical path to law and there's room. There's room for all of us here. And there's no prototypical path to being the DNI director either, I would say. I, I think that although my path for DNI directors is actually somewhat prototypical, it's like, the lawyer who wanted to stay around and help people. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but Larry, I think we're at time. Can I just say thank you so much for doing this with me and for going on this adventure as my, my host? Well, thank you for letting me do it. It is really nice to be on this side. And I think you should commit to sometime after another 50 or so episodes to doing a part two. Ooh, doing it again. Okay, I will remember that. And then with that, I hope listeners know this, but I end every show like this. If you have comments or questions for me, but also for Larry, please feel free to reach out to either of us. Um, And if you don't see my rants about the legal profession on LinkedIn, follow me on LinkedIn. You can find them there. But with that, we will sign off. I will thank Larry one more time and then we'll go. Bye, Larry. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 